before we look at 1 Corinthians 15, I, I wanted you to turn back, turn back to that choir anthem, if you will. Uh, I got to hear it twice today, but that uh, anthem, that's an arrangement by Craig Courtney, but the man who wrote that was William Cooper. Uh, William Cooper is regarded as one of the greatest poets in the history of the English language. He was also a believer. Uh, he had been sent to... Uh, in the uh, latter 1600s and se early 1700s, he, he was sent to a boarding school by his father. And something, uh, something horrific happened at that school that basically affected him the rest of his life. We, we don't know what it was, but he, uh, he, he never married, and he, he suffered from depression to uh, just very, very deep. And he felt deeply like many artistic people and, and poets. And there was a play done, uh, I was thinking about all this during the, uh, the anthem, there was a play done that was written called William and John. Uh, his pastor was John Newton. John Newton we look back at as a man who wrote Amazing Grace, but primarily John Newton was known as a pastor, uh, not only because of his conversion from being a captain of a slave ship, but then he became a pastor that was an exemplary pastor for how he cared for the flock. And William Cooper came and lived with John Newton and his family. And John would try to talk to him to bring him out of these, these dark periods in his life. And there was a play that was written that is based on, on what actually happened. But in the play, at least, even as William Cooper was about to die, he was just feeling God had abandoned him, feeling he was all alone. And John Newton is talking to him and saying, no, he's reminding him of the promises of God, that God is faithful, God will remain with you, God will never forsake you. And then in the play, the lights darken and William Cooper dies. And John Newton is sitting by the bed like this. But then a light arises. Sometimes the light surprises. And John looks up and says, see, William, I told you. And uh, hearing that and to see how God used this man who suffered so much to write what is one of my favorite hymns uh, all, and I love Craig Courtney's arrangement. But if you go on YouTube, you'll find all sorts of uh, different groups, uh, choirs, large college choirs and others singing what you heard our choir sing this morning with sometimes a light surprises. Uh, William Cooper whom my wife knows 10 times more about than I do. Now, you'll have to correct me on what I said, Barbara, if I, I got some of it wrong. Uh, today we are coming now to the final two chapters in 1 Corinthians. Um, and we're in 1 Corinthians 15. For those that have been with us for over a year now, while we've been going through 1 Corinthians, uh, off and on, uh, you may be relieved to know that we're now coming to the last two chapters, and we come to the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians, which is chapter 15, but it is one of the most uh, joyfully filled chapters in the entire Bible for what is proclaimed here, what is uh, taught by the Apostle Paul. So I hope you have a Bible open, uh, and you can follow along the bulletin, or if you've got the Bible, page 961. And I'll just look at, we're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. Hear God's word. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Let's pray together. Our Father, now may you come by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray you'd meet us where we are, draw us, give us faith, give us faithfulness, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to mention a, a couple of things. One is um, two of our members, their dad passed away this week, uh, the father of uh, Lisa Vance and Ellen Duggan, Paul Gillespie. The funeral will be Wednesday at 2 o'clock at Snows. also want to thank the Neal family for the 100 years of flowers, beautiful arrangement up here that are here every Veterans Day. And I know it's 100 years because Rob Danner assured me he was here the very first Sunday. They did that. <laughs> There's a British journalist named Steve Turner, uh, and he's, uh, he's got a great sense of humor. And he wrote, one of the things he's written is called The Modern Thinker's Creed. If you listen to Robbie Zacharias, you've heard this because he likes to quote it. But uh, here's what Steve Turner wrote about the confusing times we live in. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your definition of knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there is something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think basically his good morals were really bad. We believe that all religions are the basically the same, at least the one we read about. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, and if the dead have lied, then it's compulsively heaven for all except perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What is selected is average, what's average is normal, and what's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors, and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. That is the fault of society. 
society's the fault of conditions, and conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him, and reality then will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust and history will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth except the truth that there is no absolute truth. Well, he went on and on. And as I read that, I thought, you know, we live in confusing times, but really no different than what our brothers and sisters back around the year 50 lived in in the city of Corinth. The same satirical essay could have been written then. So as we come to the end or toward the end or the closing part of 1 Corinthians, we, uh, we come to this chapter that I said is, is full of hope. Let me remind you, if you've not been with us or if you've forgotten, that Paul had come, he had arrived in the city of Corinth, this, this uh, very large city, a port city. It was a wealthy city. There were people from all parts of the planet. There were all sorts of religions. There were all sorts of philosophies, which is typical of a port city. And he came there around the year 51 A.D., and he preached, and he led people to Christ, and he planted a church there, and he stayed 18 months. So for a year and a half, the Apostle Paul was there establishing this church, and by and large, that was a a long time for him to stay at one place. The only place he stayed longer was the city of Ephesus. But we read in Acts chapter 18, it said, He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And Paul moved on from Corinth to Ephesus, where he stayed three years. So this letter that we are reading was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in the city of Ephesus toward the end of his three-year stint in Ephesus back to the Christians in Corinth. So we can assume then that the church was maybe four years old, three to four years old when they received this. And if you've been with us, we have been through 14 chapters where he has answered some questions. He has instructed them about some problems in the church. But now at the end of the letter, he says, I'm going back to those things that are of first importance. We're going back to primary issues now, not tertiary or secondary issues. So what is most important? Here's what the text begins by saying. In verse 1, he reminds them of the basic content of the gospel which he had proclaimed among them. He's repeating the facts. He's not adding to them. He's not giving them some new teaching. He's repeating what they'd already heard from him. He says he's going back to what they received from him. So they've received this word. They've received the gospel, the good news of Christ. Second, he says you're making your stand on the gospel. You're standing on it. And third, in verse 2, he says, you're staking, you are being saved by it. They're staking their eternal salvation on the gospel. They believe that it made them right with God and that they will live with him forever. But then he adds an if in the latter part of verse 2. He says, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. They will obtain salvation if they hold fast. Apparently, they were in danger of not holding fast. They were in danger of losing their grip on the truth. They were in danger of veering away from the basics. Now, what's he saying to them? I think today he would say, 
any one of us, regardless of whether you're a Christian, have been a Christian a long, long time, regardless of how much you know, how much you've studied the Bible, how much theology you know, regardless, any of us are capable at any time of beginning to slide backwards in our faith, to lose our grip on that which we believe. Now, I say that because it may happen because of intellectual doubts. It may happen because of life experiences. It may happen because of unresolved conflict with other people or bitterness or lust of the flesh or the desire for other things or the love of the world or just disillusionment with yourself, disillusionment with God. It can be a thousand different reasons. And in a crowd this size, I would assume that it's possible some of you walked in here this morning and you are losing your grip on your faith. And I don't mean you don't know it. You know it. In fact, if you could have the confidence to say so, you might say to me, I am this close. I am hanging by a thread. And that thread is about to break. Well, you're in the right place. Because we're looking at a passage that deals with that here at 1 Corinthians 15. So let's see how Paul tried to help them, especially those that might be feeling they are moving away, as the psalmist says, falling backwards uh, from the faith. He reminds them first of the facts of the resurrection. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now that word received is repeated in this passage several times. Here's what it means. To receive, in the sense of the way he's using that, is to, re, is to re, refers to information that's been passed on to you personally by an eyewitness. I've told you before, but I've, I've witnessed a few car accidents out here on this corner. I, I, that, if you only knew how many, you know, come at Mulberry and First Street. And I've been standing out there before and looked over a person's shoulder and seen a car go through a light and get hit by another one. And uh, I've given testimony to the policeman as to what I saw and which light was green or red. And basically he's saying, okay, I want to receive your testimony. I want, to, I want to receive, and I tell him what happened, and he's getting it from an eyewitness. That's what Paul is saying here, what he had received. He had received the message about Christ. And now he had passed it on to them, and they had received it from him. And he reminds them of the facts of the gospel. First, and I guess we are in verse 3. First fact is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's the first fact. The fact that Christ died assumes that he lived, that he became a man. We call that the incarnation. Around here we speak about the bad news, good news. So here's, here's where all this begins. We go all the way back to the, the beginning of the Bible. We see that God created our, our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve. And they had five senses, just like you and me. They had taste and touch and sight and hear and smell. But they also had a sixth sense, a spiritual dimension in their life that we don't have. They literally walked and talked with God in the garden. And they loved God since they were created to do so, just as we are. But something happened. They disobeyed the one commandment God gave to them, one prohibition. And he had warned them, if you disobey this, if you break this, 
you violate this, in that day you will surely die. It was emphatic. Dying you will die. Well, they committed that crime against God. They, they broke his law. They, they sinned, which means missed the mark. And they died. They didn't die physically. They lived a long time after that. They had children and, and, and lived to be very old. But they died spiritually, not physically. That spiritual dimension, that spiritual sense that they had now was lost. And that was one of the consequences of their sin against God. And so in the opening chapters, the first three chapters of the Bible, we find all of this happening, and yet at that very time, as God punishes them, and part of that punishment was to send them out of the garden that he had created, he promises he will send a redeemer, one who will make things right. In fact, when they have their first son, they seem to, Adam and Eve seem to think this must be him. So they clearly understood that God had said, I will send one. Now we have scripture after scripture, as Paul says, this is in accordance with the scriptures. Hundreds of prophecies are made in the Old Testament about this coming Redeemer. Some of the better known ones that, that you would know, he'd be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. He would heal the sick. He would enable the lame to walk. He would cause the blind to see. We find that in Isaiah. He would teach in parables. He would be arrested and crucified. The soldiers would gamble for his clothing there even as he died. His death would be in the place of others. He would be numbered among thieves and yet buried in a rich man's tomb. What the passage we read earlier together, their affirmation of faith, Isaiah 53, was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and yet we have things there that you know I'm reading about Jesus that God had allowed Isaiah to see. So he says it's in accordance with the scriptures that Jesus died. He was really dead. Secondly, he was buried. Fact number two, he was taken down from the cross. According to the Jewish customs of the day, he was wrapped in burial clothes. Intermingled in those burial clothes were probably about 100 pounds of spices to preserve the body. The body was laid in a donated tomb. The huge stone was rolled in front of the entrance, not to keep him in, but to keep would-be thieves out. The Roman seal was placed on the tomb. That's like our yellow tape at a crime scene today where it says, keep out crime scene. Don't enter this room. If you break that, you're violating the law. The Roman seal was the same thing. It was placed on that stone saying, if you break this, you're going against the law of the entire empire. So do not enter this tomb. So he was buried. Fact number three, he was raised on the third day. Paul says, the women didn't go to the wrong tomb that first Easter morning. The body was not stolen or hidden away by the disciples. The human being in history on a particular day was raised from the dead. So the phrase, in accordance with the scriptures, argues that the historical nature of the gospel hinges on the resurrection. Oh, by the way, I was speaking with an atheist one day, and I we were talking, and I asked him about what he made of all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. I said, isn't this unusual? I mean, you've got hundreds of prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. And his immediate answer, and some of you have heard this, and you might even give it, 
You might even believe it. And he just said, well, those were obviously written in later. After Jesus lived, they went back and wrote those prophecies in that, you know, so that he could fulfill them. I said, well, there's a problem. And that is that the Old Testament was complete and it was in print in Greek by like the 4th century B.C. called the Septuagint. So it was completed 400 years. I mean, in print before Jesus was born. I just thought I'd, you don't have to pay extra for that. All right, gospel fact number four. All these things were testified to by his appearances, he said, over 40 days. Now, if to Christian, if you doubt this, once again, he's writing to believers. This is not apologetic in nature. He's not, this is not an evangelistic chapter. So he's writing to Christians, reminding them, this is what your faith rests on. It rests on historical, verifiable testimony that you can put trust in. If you're going to dismiss this, then you've got to deal with four basic realities. One, the burial of Jesus. It's said that he's buried in a tomb. He's buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb he owned, and that tomb was guarded by Roman guards. It was a known location. The person who owned it was a real person. I asked at first service, have you ever heard anyone say that they think Osama bin Laden is still alive? I've read that. I mean, I don't agree with it. But why? There's no body. Buried at sea in a secret location. But see, when there's no body, then you have people saying, well, you know, something's going on. It's not what you... Well, he's saying, there's where he was buried. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He owned it. He had him buried there. You can go look for it yourself. Second thing has to be dismissed is the fact that the tomb was empty. Everyone agreed the tomb was empty. Even his enemies agreed the tomb was empty. They just tried to explain it by saying the disciples had stolen the body, came in the night and stole it away. Third thing to dismiss the resurrection, how do you deal with the post-resurrection appearances? Paul says here that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then more than 500 people, probably twice as many people are here right now at one time. And he says most of those are still alive today. This was in 20 years of the resurrection that Paul is writing this, approximately. So in 20 years, he says some have died, some have fallen asleep, as way put it, but most are still alive. Ask them. They could tell you, I saw him. I saw the resurrected Jesus. I was there that day. And fourth thing you have to dismiss is the reaction of the early disciples. These men who had fled in fear, and rightfully so, their leader was a condemned heretic. He had died on a cross. He had suffered capital punishment. They didn't want to be associated with him. What would happen to them? And yet something happened to where all of these men were prepared to die over their belief in his resurrection. So let me draw a couple of applications from this. If you, if you look, if we back up and you just look at verses 1 to 4 in a broad sense, he's saying the gospel is central. You've, you've received it. You are standing in it. You are relying on it for salvation. You are being saved. 
I want to urge you, Christian, especially if you are, if you feel I, I can I can relate maybe to these people, and and for for whatever reason I I feel my faith is waning. Then draw on the gospel every day. You say, well, how do you do that? I know the gospel. I know the facts. I know about sin, Christ, our need, faith, repentance. Well, every day you need to be reminded. I wake up. I have a loving, merciful Heavenly Father who is actively involved in my life right now, and he will be today. I have, yes, yes, I have sinned. I've broken his laws, and I've fallen short of his standard of righteousness. But Jesus died for me, and I've been adopted into God's family, and now I'm his son or I'm his daughter. Today I want to serve this Father who loves me. I want to trust him and believe in him, even when I don't understand everything he does. I want to believe that it's ultimately for his glory and for my good. And I also remind myself this life is not my home. This is just a very quick trip on the way to home. The second application is that the gospel is personal. I won't reread them, but in verses 8 to 10, Paul ends that little section by using himself as evidence of transformation. This is the message, he's saying to them, that took me. He appeared to all these people, and last of all, to me. And the least of the apostles. Why? Because I was a persecutor of the church. He said, I not only didn't believe, I wanted to imprison and kill Jesus' followers. And yet he had mercy and grace on me to such that he moved me from being a persecutor to being an apostle, which means one who is sent. He sends me now out to tell others about him. One author I read this week, I don't remember who it was, said, this is historical news with ultimate personal impact. It's not just knowledge. It's not just that the gospel is a set of facts that we learn, and that's it. It's life-transforming, and when we truly believe it, it changes us, and it continues to change us through our whole lives. And that's what Paul is saying. I think he would have asked them, and I would ask you, are you seeing transformation? Are, are you seeing this gospel in power transforming you? I mean, that's pretty dramatic to go from a persecutor to an apostle. But that transformation may be the willingness to forgive another person when you say, I know I don't have the natural power to do that. It may be the willingness to read his word or, or to pray or to draw near to him or to repent of some sin or to speak to an acquaintance about your relationship with Christ. It, it may be to, in, to invite someone to, to a worship service or, or something like that or it could, it could be all sorts of things. And, and recognize that's God. That's God. That is the power of the gospel being played out, transforming my life. Um, just briefly, this transformation, I, I conclude, not only works in the highs of our life, but also the lows. Starting a few years ago, I, I've tried off and on to take online courses just to kind of hold me accountable for learning through Robbie Zacharias International Ministries Academy. If you've not taken a course on RZIM Academy, they're worth every dollar of that. I think it's a some are $129, some are $199, and it's not for credit, but you, you, they have these lectures, these notes, 
and you take a quiz. And so right now, I'm in the third week of an eight-week course um, entitled Why Suffering? Why Pain and Suffering? And it's excellent. The lectures I, I've heard and they uh, and the notes and so forth, which I could tell you about, maybe I will later. But as far as the course, they offer these like starting every every couple of months. And you are taking it with 100, 200 other people in various places around the world. So the first assignment was to go on the forum for the class, and everybody has a blog space, and it says introduce yourself and why you're taking this class. So a few, a few weeks ago when I started the class, I just wrote very briefly, I'm, I'm so-and-so, I've, I've been a pastor for a long time, and, and I want to take this class to help me minister more effectively to people that are suffering uh, in, in my position as a pastor, but also because of things I deal with myself because of our disabled son. I just put that there. I didn't go back and check it. You can comment. You're encouraged to comment on other people's posts. So about three days ago, I went back and I said, oh, there's some comments there on what I wrote. And uh, I read this to Barbara two nights ago from this woman. And uh, she wrote, her name is Debbie. I don't even know if I can pronounce her last name, but I, I won't. She and her husband of 33 years live in North Pole, Alaska. As she says, yes, it really is a place. Has anybody here heard of North Pole, Alaska? Okay, she says it's in the interior of Alaska and part of the Fairbanks area. Good, nobody will know who I'm talking about. All right. 3.40 in the morning. Good evening, Chip. We, too, have a disabled son. He is only 15 right now, but I do struggle with what he is missing out on. However, I think God speaks to them in a more real way, or they just listen better. Our Jonathan has a piece about things on a different level. Our 21-year-old daughter, third of nine, was hit by a car and killed January 1st of this year. Jonathan and her were very close. He misses her, but is very matter-of-fact about her being in heaven. He has talked about going to heaven before. A while back, after his Sunday school class, was talking about heaven and getting a new body. He came home and told me he didn't want a new body. He wanted his body. My point, with Jonathan and other kids I know and have interacted with, is they seem to have a real knowledge of God and heaven being real. They seem to know that this life is only temporary. I think it is harder on us than them, oftentimes. What is that? What gives a person like Debbie and her husband in North Pole, Alaska, that kind of perspective amidst that kind of suffering? It's the transforming power of the gospel. That's what it is. That feels the pain and yet still thinks that God is at work here and, and life is worth living. So if you don't believe, it, it's simple. Put your faith in Christ. Receive him. That's the word Paul used. That's the word 
John used in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him, speaking of Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. It's not complicated. I mean, these, these basic facts here are, are simple. He, he, he lived, he died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared, and you trust him. And the gospel will transform you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we all deal with various things that attack our faith uh, on an intellectual level, on a, an emotional level, and in a spiritual level. We would pray for those of us that may be losing that, losing our grip, as Paul says about these Corinthian brothers and sisters, that you might enable us to go back to the basics, the basics of who Christ is and what he did and why he came. And that he has truly been raised and he's ascended to your right hand and he will return one day and it, it will be on a horse as a conqueror. And uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.